good to be here again. Speaking the word, let's, uh, let's pray to our Lord. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that as we hear from your word, just as we've heard it read and now spoken of, Lord, that you would speak. Father, uh, that you would speak uh, through me, but also, Lord, that uh, you would speak into our hearts and we might hear you, know you, rejoice and delight in you as you deserve. We pray this in your name. Amen. We're going to dive straight in this morning. Matthew 4.23, not our passage. A few weeks ago, uh, we read these words. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. It's a verse that gives a very simple and yet broad summary, doesn't it, of what Jesus has been doing. He has been traveling, teaching and proclaiming the kingdom and healing the people. This verse marks the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. A few chapters, five, six and seven, where we hear Matthew, the gospel author, uh, writing what was likely a sample of what Jesus has been teaching and proclaiming to Israel as he traveled. His word concerning the kingdom of God and life therein being made known to all the regions in Galilee. This word is then followed by the majority of chapters 9 and 10, chapters that show, as we've seen in the last few weeks, Jesus performing incredible miracles, works of power, where he has healed, where he's brought cure to disease, where he's set people free from demons, where he's rescued. And then we come to our verse this morning that we start with. And it sounds very similar. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness. This is three times that we hear what Jesus is doing, either in summary or in detail. The activity of his ministry among the people of Israel, three times that Matthew puts in front of his readers just what it is that Jesus has been doing. Maybe we'll ask the question, why? Why three reminders? As Jesus has traveled around, what has he encountered everywhere that he has gone? What has he seen? Everywhere he has traveled, he seems to encounter people that are in need. Those that are sick, people that are diseased, people that have demons within them, people that are afraid, that have been rejected. He's found people that are poor, that have been beaten down. And as we read in our in Matthew's accounts of Jesus as he traveled after the Sermon on the Mount and also in our passage this morning. These people were harassed and helpless. Like a sheep without a shepherd, 
Now, why such a sorry state? How did these people get to such a sorry state? Ezekiel 34, from our reading this morning, we get God's own insight into what is happening. Israel's poor state, their spiritual state, as well as their physical, is laid at the feet of their shepherds. These are the rulers and the authorities of the people. You see, instead of playing the role of a good shepherd and taking care of God's people, they have instead only taken care of themselves. Rather than feeding the sheep, they fed themselves. Rather than clothing the sheep, they clothed themselves. And when the sheep have been weak, and when they've been sick and diseased and needed healing and wandered away, they did nothing. They have no compassion, no care, no love for the people of God. And so the sheep have become, as we read already, harassed and helpless and scattered. So bad is the Lord's accounting of the ruler's shepherding activities that they are now likened to wolves, needing to be rescued from the mouths of those who were once called to be shepherds. Now, God has a hard word of judgment for the rulers and the authorities of Israel, but that's not what our focus is this morning. Our attention is instead on the verses that follow that judgment. On a word of hope for these scattered and bedraggled sheep of Israel. Unlike the men that thought only of themselves being callous, to the sufferings of people, the word of hope is that God will be their shepherd. God is moved by his own compassion for his people, his love for them, and he's moved to speak words as we read this morning. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will search for my sheep. I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places to which they have been scattered. I will bring them out from the people and gather them. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the watercourses. I will feed them on the good pastures. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weakened. I will feed them with justice. And he does this a few verses later by saying that I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant, David, and he shall feed them. He will feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, it's safe to say that God is not speaking of David as we know him. By the time of Ezekiel, a prophet who has been captured and taken to Babylon, David has been dead for some time. Instead, he speaks of someone of David's line, someone that would be a shepherd king, he who would seek out the people and find them, those scattered sheep, and lead them to the greatest of pastures, 
who would feed them and make them strong and cure their illness and bind up those injuries. Not just another shepherd, but the shepherd. And so we come back to our question. Why does Matthew remind us three times of what Jesus has been doing in those chapters? But to show us that Jesus is this long-awaited shepherd of God's people. He is the promised shepherd uh, king of David's line. And just by looking at what he is doing in his ministry, we can see that it satisfies God's heart for his people. You can see that he seeks the people of Israel as he travels to every region and every city, feeding them on the good news of the kingdom of God, curing every sickness and disease, including the expulsion of demons and the forgiveness of sin. And he's moved to do so by the same compassion that the father has for his sheep. The Lord Jesus is the shepherd of his people. This is the big point of this morning's sermon. We've already reached it. I believe it's the big point of Ray's sermon next week as well. That box is ticked. Uh, the Lord is the shepherd of his people, or to give him another title from our passage this morning, he is the Lord of the harvest. Now, this has great importance for, as we'll see today and next week, knowing that the Lord is the shepherd and the Lord of the harvest. It transforms our understanding of the ministry that we have been given. For how we see God changes how we see ourselves in this role, our responsibilities and our actions in evangelism, taking the gospel out because we see his action in those things. One aspect of evangelism that changes is our understanding of just who it is that is in charge of the work. Like every office project, there's one person who is ultimately in charge and responsible. Upon them lays the ownership of that project their heart above everybody else's beats for the sake of getting this achieved. And when it comes to the care of the people of God, it is the Lord who is in charge. Consider the instruction that Jesus gives to his disciples. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Now, if we pause there, what would we expect the next words to be? I think what we would expect is that the harvest is plentiful, the labourers are few. Can I get a few volunteers? Raise your hands. And there are a few responses to such an assumption. Those that are guilty and responsibility driven, I am one of them, begrudgingly raise their hands, having no real compassion of their own, but knowing that this is the right thing to do, the good thing to do. So I guess I have to do it and take the high road and suffer in silence or the response of the passionate person, perhaps. 
who before they've even raised their hand has organised everybody into six different groups and come up with a plan to be effective. Perhaps there are more groups than that, but Jesus doesn't ask for volunteers. His words aren't that. He's not calling for people to begin to take charge of the mission. His instruction is entirely different. He says, therefore, ask, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send laborers into the harvest. Prayer. And suddenly all those groups are put in their place. Those driven by guilt and responsibility need not feel guilty because they are not being asked to look after the sheep or go looking for. It's not their responsibility until they are called. It is the Lord's. It's the Lord's responsibility to appoint the workers and to find the sheep because they are his sheep. The passionate have their breakneck pace halted they have no authority or place to take charge of this mission. It isn't their mission to do so. It is the Lord of the harvest mission. He's in charge. We are not responsible for calling people to gospel work, ourselves or others. The Lord is. We simply pray that he would do so that he would call his workers to work and that we might be able to recognise his calling on the lives of the people around us, on ourselves or one another, so that we might support them. Instead, Jesus calls his disciples, irrelevant of their current heart toward the lost, just to pray, to seek him, to speak to the one in charge of that great mission field. Lord, send your people. The people need you. They need your, uh, your shepherd. They are harassed by the powerful. They are hopeless in their current predicament. They need you, Lord of the harvest. You can imagine... What happens to the heart of somebody that prays this prayer often? First, they recognise who is the great shepherd, his position and his authority. But secondly, I believe they would grow in their own compassion for the sheep. Not a compassion born of guilt or control, but the true compassion of the Lord under him. So this is what we are called to do first and foremost concerning the lost sheep, to pray. Pray to the one who is filled with compassion, who is and has and will continue to do a great work to make a way for his people. The one who calls his workers onto the mission field. I've heard it said that the evangelising church is the one that puts its money where its mouth is. That is, that the church that is concerned for evangelism on the whole employs somebody, puts money 
and resources into making sure that evangelism is going out and happening. But this passage seems to say something very different, doesn't it? The evangelizing church is the one that puts its prayer where its mouth is. Now, following this, we see in the next verse, Jesus do what seems very contradictory to what he has just told his disciples. Rather than pray for laborers, he calls his disciples to him and he appoints them with his own authority and power and gives them instruction in their calling. Or why this might be contradictory for us to do such a thing. He is the Lord of the harvest. And it's his role to appoint and to call those that he wishes to do so. And so that's what we see happening. He's calling people to the mission field, his apostles. And what does this calling look like? But in the first place, to be given an authority to do the work of the shepherd. To do works of power just like him, power to expel demons, to heal sick and to cure disease. Now here we must be careful. The calling of these men and the instruction they receive, while there are many truths that we can glean from them for our own time, is unique to the disciples or to the apostles on this occasion. While I do believe that God still does great works and wonders and signs of healing, uh, signs of power and healing in the church today, it's not hard for us to be able to see and say that it is not all the time. There are those that we as a church have continued to pray for that have not received healing. Now we trust that God is as compassionate and good to those that he has not healed as he is to those that he has. But these men seem to have an unusual and unique authority to be able to pray for a miracle to occur with certainty. The apostles are unique in their role throughout the New Testament. They seem to be able to perform many miracles in front of the people testifying of the Lord, of the shepherd who has sent them. In Luke 10, Jesus sends out 72 disciples in pairs to do a very similar work. And in fact, the phrasing is very similar to what we read this morning. The harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. These were a group of men that followed Jesus, a general gathering of disciples. Yet here in Matthew, he draws our attention to 12 by labelling, giving them then, us their names to point out these men specifically. In 2 Corinthians 12.12, 12, Paul says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with the utmost patience, signs and wonders and mighty works. These Looking for the right word and it's just left me. The reliability of their signs and their wonders was a mark of who these men were in their unique position within the church. 
And after Jesus ascended, it was the power that they were able to display in his name that helped them establish the church in the first place. To be able to say, we come from the Lord, bearing his message to you. Now, just who are these men? Unique and given authority, certainly. The power of Jesus, and yet very ordinary. Consider the men that he's called. We look at the quality of the labourers that are laid before us. There are two names in this list of future apostles that are given a little more detail than the others. Matthew, the tax collector, and Judas, the one who would betray him. What we don't have here is a raving CV that boasts of a long list of accomplishments and strengths and abilities in these men. Peter here is also listed. And although we don't see it in detail here, we know from our own reading of the Bible that Peter is like a bull in a china shop on a good day. And later is found to deny Jesus three times on the night that he is betrayed. These were in a way utterly ordinary men. Faults and all. So why use them? So that we might once again be reminded as we see their weakness and the great works they do. As we may even see the fruit in our own lives and our own weaknesses. And be reminded just who it is that is at work here. In 2 Corinthians 4, 7, it says, Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay so that we might be made, it might be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. The work they do, the authority they bear, the fruit that will be harvested should always be seen and known as Jesus's. It is his glory that is seen in fruitfulness of the mission, in the power of the mission, not in the men. What makes them powerful and unique in history isn't themselves, but the Lord of the harvest at work. And after empowering his disciples, Jesus then gives them instruction. For there is a way. A way that Jesus wants his apostles to shepherd. They don't have free reign to evangelize however they want. It's not like the parable of the talents where you get the impression that these men have been given the money and can use it however they want so long as they're fruitful at the end of the day. No, Jesus has given instruction for them to follow. There is a way that the gospel is to be presented to the people. First, it is for Israel alone. Again, we must see this for the time that it is given. While the gospel now is to be taken to all the nations, as is seen in the Great Commission in chapter 28, it was for the apostles to first take it to the lost sheep of Israel. And as they do, 
They had to go out to the sheep of Israel, proclaiming the kingdom, curing the sick, cleansing the lepers, and casting out the demons. What does that remind you of? We see again that these men are called to do exactly what Jesus was doing. What we read in our summary and in the Sermon on the Mount, he is, they are called, he is calling them to present him to the people, the shepherd. To take his message, his power to the sheep so that he, through them, would be bringing them back. For he is the Lord of the harvest. Secondly, they are to receive no payment for their work or to take any money with them. Nor are they to take any belt or bag or spare clothes or shoes or even their staff with them. They can be fed by people, but no more. So that the grace of the gospel wouldn't ever be tarnished. It's done freely and paying for it in any way would diminish the grace of it. Our passage says, you received without payment. Give without payment. And so the disciples will always be reliant on the Lord of the harvest because it's his work. He provides everything that they need as they go. And this too is a part of their message to the people. The loving provision of the Lord. Should those called today follow similar limitations? The gospel should be kept free of cost. This is why we ask for an offering during the service given freely from a generous heart rather than an entrance fee at the door of the church. It's why Ray and I are not paid salaries. We're given stipend. Just say we're not paid for the gospel. We're supported to go out with the gospel. Other mission organisations must wrestle with how they do these things, but we don't want to muddy the grace of Jesus. Should everyone called to gospel work give up those shoes and belt and other sets of clothing, there are some that have done so and they have had incredible ministries. George Mueller is one of them, a man that ran an orphanage in England. If you haven't read his uh, biography, it's worth the time. Never made a single need of, that, of his own or the orphanage known, only in prayer. And it was almost daily that he experienced incredible miracles. Things happening uh, that can only be attributed to the Lord of the harvest. And yet there are many mission organisations that don't do it that way. So what is the path that needs to be tread? We must know in all that we have that everything has been given to us 
by the Lord of the harvest. Whether it is by the work of power, the miracle, or whether it's even by the sweat of the brow of the labourers, all of it is the Lord of the harvest, not our own. Dependence upon him. Furthermore, the common method by which the Lord supplies the needs of his workers is through those that are called worthy in our passage. People that receive and respond to the gospel, the church in our case. The apostles are instructed to remain and stay and be supported by those that are worthy. Here we see a role for those in the Christian community that have not yet or maybe won't be, have that feeling of being called by the Lord. But they still have a role in being able to make sure that the gospel is going out in supporting those that are. Lastly, this morning, I know I've rushed towards the end. Lastly, this morning, we see the Lord of the harvest sharp, uh, shaping our understanding of the mission field and ourselves in the role when it comes to dealing with wolves and the gospel that we present to them. This is especially prudent for the apostles as this exact, these exact words of Jesus's come true for them. They are taken by the wolves who were once the shepherds, put before councils and governors and kings and flogged. This will happen. Uh, this has happened to them and to a degree happens to us when we take out the gospel. There are those that oppose our message. And as we'll see next week, it causes division among those that will receive the gospel and those that will not. We are not promised no suffering in this life. Matthew's gospel has a great focus on the message of suffering now and glory later. But Jesus doesn't want his disciples to be taken by the wolves for any other reason than the gospel. Not to give excuse or opportunity to have blame laid upon his workers for any other reason than his name going out. So he says to them to be wise as serpents, not devious or, or deceitful but wise in what you do. And he couples it with remaining as innocent as doves. So that when you are taken by the wolves, you can testify of the great shepherd in their midst. There is a message for us here. The conduct and the mistakes of the church have often been scrutinised by the world. And we have not always been found to be wise as serpents or innocent as doves. But on the days that we should be, 
taken to task for being a labourer of the Lord of the harvest, we need not be afraid of the testimony that we have before them. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So we see that the Lord of the harvest supplies all that is needed to take care of his sheep. He supplies the workers, the authority, the physical need of the mission and the words that are to be spoken. Before all these things we should do, as Jesus said, the world is full, as far as we are concerned, with the people that are in desperate need of the good shepherd. We must pray that he will do as we have read this morning, that he would act as the Lord of the harvest for his people and the shepherd of his sheep and send out labourers to claim his people back to him. So let's close our eyes and pray to the Lord of the harvest. Heavenly Father, you are the great worker, the one who, Lord, has compassion. Compassion that drives, Lord, drives your people. For many of us have been sent and called, Lord, to go out and be, Lord, rich with your gospel for them. To have it on our lips and ready to be spoken. But Father, as we consider the mission, as we consider your people, as those that need to hear you, Lord, as we see even the fruit of so many uh, missions in the past, in the in history, Lord, and as we consider the future, who are we to see? Great disciples, great apostles, people that do it all right? No. We're to see the Lord of the harvest at work, using people like us to love others, to bring others in and back to you, you at work, Father. Thank you, Lord, for your heart and your compassion for your people, of which we have received so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.